Paper 77. The Midway Creatures. Most of the inhabited worlds of Nebadon harbor one or more groups of unique beings, existing on a life-functioning level about midway between those of the mortals of the realms and of the angelic orders. Hence are they called Midway Creatures. They appear to be an accident of time, but they occur so widespreadly and are so valuable as helpers that we have all long since accepted them as one of the essential orders of our combined planetary ministry. On Urantia there function two distinct orders of midwayers, the primary or senior core, who came into being back in the days of Dalamatia, and the secondary or younger group, whose origin dates from the times of Adam. 1. The Primary Midwayers The primary midwayers have their genesis in a unique interassociation of the material and the spiritual on Urantia. We know of the existence of similar creatures on other worlds and in other systems, but they originated by dissimilar techniques. It is well always to bear in mind that the successive bestowals of the sons of God on an evolving planet produce marked changes in the spiritual economy of the realm and sometimes so modify the workings of the interassociation of spiritual and material agencies on a planet as to create situations indeed difficult of understanding. The status of the 100 corporeal members of Prince Caligastia's staff illustrates just such a unique interassociation. As ascendant Marancha citizens of Jerusalem, they were supermaterial creatures without reproductive prerogatives. As descendant planetary ministers on Urantia, they were material sex creatures capable of procreating material offspring, as some of them later did. What we cannot satisfactorily explain is how these 100 could function in the parental role on a supermaterial level, but that is exactly what happened. A supermaterial, non-sexual, liaison of a male and a female member of the corporeal staff resulted in the appearance of the firstborn of the primary midwayers. It was immediately discovered that a creature of this order, midway between the mortal and angelic levels, would be of great service in carrying on the affairs of the prince's headquarters, and each couple of the corporeal staff was accordingly granted permission to produce a similar being. This effort resulted in the first group of fifty midway creatures. After a year of observing the work of this unique group, the planetary prince authorized the reproduction of midwayers without restriction. This plan was carried out as long as the power to create continued, and the original core of 50,000 was accordingly brought into being. A period of one half year intervened between the production of each midwayer, and when 1,000 such beings had been born to each couple, no more were ever forthcoming and there is no explanation available as to why this power was exhausted upon the appearance of the one-thousandth offspring. No amount of further experimentation ever resulted in anything but failure. These creatures constituted the intelligence core of the prince's administration. They ranged far and wide, studying and observing the world races and rendering other invaluable services to the prince and his staff in the work of influencing human society remote from the planetary headquarters. This regime continued until the tragic days of the planetary rebellion, which ensnared a little over four-fifths of the primary midwayers. The loyal corps entered the service of the Melchizedek receivers, 
functioning under the titular leadership of Van until the days of Adam. 2. The Nadite Race While this is the narrative of the origin, nature, and function of the midway creatures of Urantia, the kinship between the two orders, primary and secondary, makes it necessary to interrupt the story of the primary midwayers at this point in order to follow out the line of descent from the rebel members of the corporeal staff of Prince Caligastia from the days of the planetary rebellion to the times of Adam. It was this line of inheritance which, in the early days of the second garden, furnished one half of the ancestry for the secondary order of midway creatures. The physical members of the prince's staff had been constituted sex creatures for the purpose of participating in the plan of procreating offspring embodying the combined qualities of their special order united with those of the selected stock of the Andon tribes. And all of this was in anticipation of the subsequent appearance of Adam. The life carriers had planned a new type of mortal, embracing the union of the conjoint offspring of the prince's staff with the first-generation offspring of Adam and Eve. They had thus projected a plan envisioning a new order of planetary creatures, whom they hoped would become the teacher-rulers of human society. Such beings were designed for social sovereignty, not civil sovereignty. But since this project almost completely miscarried, we shall never know what an aristocracy of benign leadership and matchless culture Urantia was thus deprived of. For when the corporeal staff later reproduced, it was subsequent to the rebellion and after they had been deprived of their connection with the life currents of the system. The post-rebellion era on Urantia witnessed many unusual happenings. A great civilization, the culture of Dalamatia, was going to pieces. The Nephilim, Nadites, were on earth in those days, and when these sons of the gods went in to the daughters of men and they bore to them, their children were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. While hardly sons of the gods, the staff and their early descendants were so regarded by the evolutionary mortals of those distant days. Even their stature came to be magnified by tradition. This, then, is the origin of the well-nigh universal folktale of the gods who came down to earth and there with the daughters of men begot an ancient race of heroes. And all this legend became further confused with the race mixtures of the later appearing Adamites in the second garden. Since the one hundred corporeal members of the prince's staff carried germplasm of the andonic human strains, it would naturally be expected that, if they engaged in sexual reproduction, their progeny would altogether resemble the offspring of other andonite parents. But when the sixty rebels of the staff, the followers of Nod, actually engaged in sexual reproduction, their children proved to be far superior in almost every way to both the Andonite and the Sangic peoples. This unexpected excellence characterized not only physical and intellectual qualities, but also spiritual capacities. These mutant traits appearing in the first Nodite generation resulted from certain changes which had been wrought in the configuration and in the chemical constituents of the inheritance factors of the Andonic germplasm. These changes were caused by the presence in the bodies of the staff members of the powerful life maintenance circuits of the Satania system. These life circuits caused the chromosomes of the specialized Urantia pattern to reorganize more after the patterns of the standardized Satania specialization of the ordained Nebadon life manifestation. 
The technique of this germplasm metamorphosis, by the action of the system life currents, is not unlike those procedures whereby Urantia scientists modify the germplasm of plants and animals by the use of X-rays. Thus did the Nodite peoples arise out of certain peculiar and unexpected modifications occurring in the life plasm which had been transferred from the bodies of the Andonite contributors to those of the corporeal staff members by the Avalon surgeons. It will be recalled that the 100 Andonite germplasm contributors were in turn made possessors of the organic complement of the tree of life, so that the Satania life currents likewise invested their bodies. The 44 modified Andonites who followed the staff into rebellion also mated among themselves and made a great contribution to the better strains of the Nodite people. These two groups, embracing 104 individuals who carried the modified Andonite germplasm, constitute the ancestry of the Nodites, the eighth race to appear on Urantia. And this new feature of human life on Urantia represents another phase of the outworking of the original plan of utilizing this planet as a life modification world, except that this was one of the unforeseen developments. The Pure Line Nodites were a magnificent race, but they gradually mingled with the evolutionary peoples of Earth, and before long, great deterioration had occurred. Ten thousand years after the rebellion, they had lost ground to the point where their average length of life was little more than that of the evolutionary races. When archaeologists dig up the clay tablet records of the later-day Sumerian descendants of the Nodites, they discover lists of Sumerian kings running back for several thousand years. And as these records go further back, the reigns of the individual kings lengthen, from around 25 or 30 years up to 150 years and more. This lengthening of the reigns of these older kings signifies that some of the early Nodite rulers, immediate descendants of the prince's staff, did live longer than their later-day successors, and also indicates an effort to stretch the dynasties back to Dalamatia. The records of such long-lived individuals are also due to the confusion of months and years as time periods. This may also be observed in the biblical genealogy of Abraham and in the early records of the Chinese. The confusion of the 28-day month, or season, with the later introduced year of more than 350 days is responsible for the traditions of such long human lives. There are records of a man who lived over 900 years. This period represents not quite 70 years, and such lives were regarded for ages as very long, threescore years and ten, as such a lifespan was later designated. The reckoning of time by the 28-day month persisted long after the days of Adam. But when the Egyptians undertook to reform the calendar, about 7,000 years ago, they did it with great accuracy, introducing the year of 365 days. 3. The Tower of Babel After the submergence of Dalamatia, the Nodites moved north and east, presently founding the new city of Dilmun as their racial and cultural headquarters. And about 50,000 years after the death of Nod, when the offspring of the prince's staff had become too numerous to find subsistence in the lands immediately surrounding their new city of Dilmun, and after they had reached out to intermarry with the Andonite and Sangic tribes adjoining their borders, it occurred to their leaders that something should be done to preserve their racial unity. 
Accordingly, a council of the tribes was called, and after much deliberation, the plan of Bablat, a descendant of Nod, was endorsed. Bablat proposed to erect a pretentious temple of racial glorification at the center of their then-occupied territory. This temple was to have a tower, the like of which the world had never seen. It was to be a monumental memorial to their passing greatness. There were many who wished to have this monument erected in Dilmun, but others contended that such a great structure should be placed a safe distance from the dangers of the sea, remembering the traditions of the engulfment of their first capital, Dalamatia. Bablat planned that the new buildings should become the nucleus of the future center of the Nadite culture and civilization. His council finally prevailed, and construction was started in accordance with his plans. The new city was to be named Bablat, after the architect and builder of the tower. This location later became known as Bablad, and eventually as Babel. But the Nadites were still somewhat divided in sentiment as to the plans and purposes of this undertaking. Neither were their leaders altogether agreed concerning either construction plans or usage of the buildings after they should be completed. After four and one-half years of work, a great dispute arose about the object and motive for the erection of the tower. The contentions became so bitter that all work stopped. The food carriers spread the news of the dissension, and large numbers of the tribes began to foregather at the building site. Three differing views were propounded as to the purpose of building the tower. 1. The largest group, almost one-half, desired to see the tower built as a memorial of Nodite history and racial superiority. They thought it ought to be a great and imposing structure, which would challenge the admiration of all future generations. 2. The next largest faction wanted the tower designed to commemorate the Dilmun culture. They foresaw that Bablot would become a great center of commerce, art, and manufacture. 3. The smallest and minority contingent held that the erection of the tower presented an opportunity for making atonement for the folly of their progenitors in participating in the Caligastia rebellion. They maintained that the tower should be devoted to the worship of the Father of all, that the whole purpose of the new city should be to take the place of Dalamatia, to function as the cultural and religious center for the surrounding barbarians. The religious group were promptly voted down. The majority rejected the teaching that their ancestors had been guilty of rebellion. They resented such a racial stigma. Having disposed of one of the three angles to the dispute, and failing to settle the other two by debate, they fell to fighting. The religionists, the non-combatants, fled to their homes in the south, while their fellows fought until well-nigh obliterated. About twelve thousand years ago, a second attempt to erect the Tower of Babel was made. The mixed races of the Andites, Nodites, and Adamites undertook to raise a new temple on the ruins of the first structure, but there was not sufficient support for the enterprise. It fell of its own pretentious weight. This region was long known as the Land of Babel. 4. Nodite Centers of Civilization The dispersion of the Nodites was an immediate result of the internecine conflict over the Tower of Babel. This internal war greatly reduced the numbers of the purer Nodites and was in many ways responsible for their failure to establish a great pre-Adamic civilization. From this time on, Nodite culture declined for over 120,000 years until it was upstepped by Adamic infusion. 
but even in the times of Adam, the Nodites were still an able people. Many of their mixed descendants were numbered among the garden builders, and several of Van's group captains were Nodites. Some of the most capable minds serving on Adam's staff were of this race. Three out of the four great Nodite centers were established immediately following the Bablat conflict. 1. The Western or Syrian Nodites. The remnants of the nationalistic or racial memorialists journeyed northward, uniting with the Andonites to found the later Nodite centers to the northwest of Mesopotamia. This was the largest group of the dispersing Nodites, and they contributed much to the later appearing Assyrian stock. 2. The Eastern or Elamite Nodites. The culture and commerce advocates migrated in large numbers eastward into Elam, and there united with the mixed Sangic tribes. The Elamites of thirty to forty thousand years ago had become largely Sangic in nature, although they continued to maintain a civilization superior to that of the surrounding barbarians. After the establishment of the Second Garden, it was customary to allude to this nearby Nodite settlement as the Land of Nod and during the long period of relative peace between this Nodite group and the Adamites, the two races were greatly blended, for it became more and more the custom for the sons of God, the Adamites, to intermarry with the daughters of men, the Nodites. 3. The Central or Pre-Sumerian Nodites A small group at the mouth of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers maintained more of their racial integrity they persisted for thousands of years, and eventually furnished the Nodite ancestry which blended with the Adamites to found the Sumerian peoples of historic times. And all of this explains how the Sumerians appeared so suddenly and mysteriously on the stage of action in Mesopotamia. Investigators will never be able to trace out and follow these tribes back to the beginning of the Sumerians, who had their origin 200,000 years ago after the submergence of Dalmatia. Without a trace of origin elsewhere in the world, these ancient tribes suddenly loom upon the horizon of civilization with a full-grown and superior culture, embracing temples, metalwork, agriculture, animals, pottery, weaving, commercial law, civil codes, religious ceremonial, and an old system of writing. At the beginning of the historical era, they had long since lost the alphabet of Dalmatia having adopted the peculiar writing system originating in Dilmun. The Sumerian language, though virtually lost to the world, was not Semitic. It had much in common with the so-called Aryan tongues. The elaborate records left by the Sumerians describe the site of a remarkable settlement which was located on the Persian Gulf near the earlier city of Dilmun. The Egyptians called this city of ancient glory Dilmat while the later atomized Sumerians confused both the first and second Nodite cities with Dalmatia and called all three Dilmun. And already have archaeologists found these ancient Sumerian clay tablets which tell of this earthly paradise where the gods first blessed mankind with the example of civilized and cultured life. And these tablets, descriptive of Dilmun, the paradise of men and God, are now silently resting on the dusty shelves of many museums. The Sumerians well knew of the first and second Edens, but despite extensive intermarriage with the Adamites, continued to regard the garden-dwellers to the north as an alien race. Sumerian pride in the more ancient Nodite culture 
led them to ignore these later vistas of glory in favor of the grander and paradisiacal traditions of the city of Dilmun. 4. The Northern Nodites and Amadonites, the Vanites. This group arose prior to the Bablot conflict. These northernmost Nodites were descendants of those who had forsaken the leadership of Nod and his successors for that of Van and Amadon. Some of the early associates of Van subsequently settled about the shores of the lake which still bears his name, and their traditions grew up about this locality. Ararat became their sacred mountain, having much the same meaning to later-day Vanites that Sinai had to the Hebrews. Ten thousand years ago the Vanite ancestors of the Assyrians taught that their moral law of seven commandments had been given to Van by the gods upon Mount Ararat. They firmly believed that Van and his associate Amadon were taken alive from the planet while they were up on the mountain engaged in worship. Mount Ararat was the sacred mountain of northern Mesopotamia, and since much of your tradition of these ancient times was acquired in connection with the Babylonian story of the flood, it is not surprising that Mount Ararat and its region were woven into the later Jewish story of Noah and the universal flood. About 35,000 B.C., Adamson visited one of the easternmost of the old Vanite settlements to found his center of civilization. 5. Adamson and Ratta Having delineated the Nodite antecedents of the ancestry of the secondary Midwayers, this narrative should now give consideration to the Adamic half of their ancestry, for the secondary Midwayers are also the grandchildren of Adamson, the firstborn of the violet race of Urantia. Adamson was among that group of the children of Adam and Eve who elected to remain on earth with their father and mother. Now this eldest son of Adam had often heard from Van and Amadon the story of their highland home in the north, and sometime after the establishment of the second garden he determined to go in search of this land of his youthful dreams. Adamson was 120 years old at this time, and had been the father of thirty-two pure-line children of the first garden. He wanted to remain with his parents, and assist them in upbuilding the second garden, but he was greatly disturbed by the loss of his mate and their children, who had all elected to go to Edentia, along with those other Adamic children who chose to become wards of the Most Highs. Adamson would not desert his parents on Urantia. He was disinclined to flee from hardship or danger, but he found the associations of the second garden far from satisfying. He did much to forward the early activities of defense and construction, but decided to leave for the north at the earliest opportunity. And though his departure was wholly pleasant, Adam and Eve were much grieved to lose their eldest son, to have him go out into a strange and hostile world, as they feared, never to return. A company of twenty-seven followed Adamson northward in quest of these people of his childhood fantasies. In a little over three years, Adamson's party actually found the object of their adventure, and among these people he discovered a wonderful and beautiful woman, twenty years old, who claimed to be the last pure-line descendant of the prince's staff. This woman, Ratta, said that her ancestors were all descendants of two of the fallen staff of the prince. She was the last of her race, having no living brothers or sisters. She had about decided not to mate, had about made up her mind to die without issue, but she lost her heart to the majestic Adamson, 
and when she heard the story of Eden, how the predictions of Van and Amadon had really come to pass, and as she listened to the recital of the garden default, she was encompassed with but a single thought, to marry this son and heir of Adam. And quickly the idea grew upon Adamson. In a little more than three months, they were married. Adamson and Ratta had a family of sixty-seven children. They gave origin to a great line of the world's leadership. But they did something more. It should be remembered that both of these beings were really superhuman. Every fourth child born to them was of a unique order. It was often invisible. Never in the world's history had such a thing occurred. Ratta was greatly perturbed, even superstitious. But Adamson well knew of the existence of the primary midwayers, and he concluded that something similar was transpiring before his eyes. When the second strangely behaving offspring arrived, he decided to mate them, since one was male and the other female. And this is the origin of the secondary order of midwayers. Within one hundred years, before this phenomenon ceased, almost two thousand were brought into being. Adamson lived for three hundred ninety-six years. Many times he returned to visit his father and mother. Every seven years he and Ratta journeyed south to the second garden, and meanwhile the midwayers kept him informed regarding the welfare of his people. During Adamson's life they did great service in upbuilding a new and independent world center for truth and righteousness. Adamson and Ratta thus had at their command this corps of marvelous helpers, who labored with them throughout their long lives to assist in the propagation of advanced truth and in the spread of higher standards of spiritual, intellectual, and physical living. And the results of this effort at world betterment never did become fully eclipsed by subsequent retrogressions. The Adamsonites maintained a high culture for almost seven thousand years from the times of Adamson and Ratta. Later on they became admixed with the neighboring Nodites and Andonites, and were also included among the mighty men of old. And some of the advances of that age persisted to become a latent part of the cultural potential which later blossomed into European civilization. This center of civilization was situated in the region east of the southern end of the Caspian Sea, near the Kopet Daz. A short way up in the foothills of Turkestan are the vestiges of what was one time the Adamsonite headquarters of the Violet Race. In these highland sites, situated in a narrow and ancient fertile belt, lying in the lower foothills of the Kopat Range, there successively arose at various periods four diverse cultures, respectively fostered by four different groups of Adamson's descendants. It was the second of these groups which migrated westward to Greece and the islands of the Mediterranean. The residue of Adamson's descendants migrated north and west to enter Europe with the blended stock of the last Andite wave coming out of Mesopotamia, and they were also numbered among the Andite Aryan invaders of India. 6. The Secondary Midwayers While the primary midwayers had a well-nigh superhuman origin, the secondary order are the offspring of the pure Adamic stock, united with a humanized descendant of ancestors common to the parentage of the senior corps. Among the children of Adamson, there were just sixteen of the peculiar progenitors of the secondary midwayers. These unique children were equally divided as regards sex, 
and each couple was capable of producing a secondary midwayer every 70 days by a combined technique of sex and non-sex liaison. And such a phenomenon was never possible on earth before that time, nor has it ever occurred since. These sixteen children lived and died, except for their peculiarities, as mortals of the realm, but their electrically energized offspring live on and on, not being subject to the limitations of mortal flesh. Each of the eight couples eventually produced 248 midwayers, and thus did the original secondary core, 1,984 in number, come into existence. There are eight subgroups of secondary midwayers. They are designated as ABC the first, second, third, and so on. And then there are DEF the first, second, and so on. After the default of Adam, the primary midwayers returned to the service of the Melchizedek receivers, while the secondary group were attached to the Adamson Center until his death. Thirty-three of these secondary midwayers, the chiefs of their organization at the death of Adamson, endeavored to swing the whole order over to the service of the Melchizedeks, thus effecting a liaison with the primary corps. But failing to accomplish this, they deserted their companions and went over in a body to the service of the planetary receivers. After the death of Adamson, the remainder of the secondary midwayers became a strange, unorganized, and unattached influence on Urantia. From that time to the days of Macaventa Melchizedek, they led an irregular and unorganized existence. They were partially brought under control by this Melchizedek, but were still productive of much mischief up to the days of Christ Michael. And during his sojourn on earth, they all made final decisions as to their future destiny, the loyal majority then enlisting under the leadership of the primary midwayers. 7. The Rebel Midwayers the majority of the primary midwayers went into sin at the time of the Lucifer Rebellion. When the devastation of the planetary rebellion was reckoned up, among other losses, it was discovered that of the original 50,000, 40,119 had joined the Caligastia secession. The original number of secondary midwayers was 1,984, and of these, 873 failed to align themselves with the rule of Michael and were duly interned in connection with the planetary adjudication of Urantia on the day of Pentecost. No one can forecast the future of these fallen creatures. Both groups of rebel midwayers are now held in custody, awaiting the final adjudication of the affairs of the system rebellion. But they did many strange things on earth prior to the inauguration of the present planetary dispensation. These disloyal midwayers were able to reveal themselves to mortal eyes under certain circumstances, and especially was this true of the associates of Beelzebub, the leader of the apostate secondary midwayers. But these unique creatures must not be confused with certain of the rebel cherubim and seraphim who also were on earth up to the time of Christ's death and resurrection. Some of the older writers designated these rebellious midway creatures as evil spirits and demons, and the apostate seraphim as evil angels. On no world can evil spirits possess any mortal mind subsequent to the life of a paradise-bestowal son. But before the days of Christ Michael on Urantia, before the universal coming of the thought-adjusters, 
and the pouring out of the Master's Spirit upon all flesh, these rebel midwayers were actually able to influence the minds of certain inferior mortals, and somewhat to control their actions. This was accomplished in much the same way as the loyal midway creatures function when they serve as efficient contact guardians of the human minds of the Arantia Reserve Corps of Destiny at those times when the adjuster is, in effect, detached from the personality during a season of contact with superhuman intelligences. It is no mere figure of speech when the record states, And they brought to him all sorts of sick peoples, those who were possessed by devils, and those who were lunatics. Jesus knew and recognized the difference between insanity and demoniacal possession, although these states were greatly confused in the minds of those who lived in his day and generation. Even prior to Pentecost, no rebel spirit could dominate a normal human mind, and since that day, even the weak minds of inferior mortals are free from such possibilities. The supposed casting out of devils since the arrival of the Spirit of Truth has been a matter of confounding a belief in demoniacal possession with hysteria, insanity, and feeble-mindedness. But just because Michael's bestowal has forever liberated all human minds on Urantia from the possibility of demoniacal possession, do not imagine that such was not a reality in former ages. The entire group of rebel midwayers is at present held prisoner by order of the Most Highs of Edentia. No more do they roam this world on mischief bent. Regardless of the presence of the thought adjusters, the pouring out of the Spirit of Truth upon all flesh forever made it impossible for disloyal spirits of any sort or description ever again to invade even the most feeble of human minds. Since the day of Pentecost, there never again can be such a thing as demoniacal possession. 8. The United Midwayers At the last adjudication of this world, when Michael removed the slumbering survivors of time, the midway creatures were left behind, left to assist in the spiritual and semi-spiritual work on the planet. They now function as a single core, embracing both orders and numbering 10,992. The United Midwayers of Urantia are at present governed alternately by the senior member of each order. This regime has obtained since their amalgamation into one group shortly after Pentecost. The members of the older or primary order are generally known by numerals. They are often given names such as 1, 2, 3, the first, 4, 5, 6, the first, and so on. On Urantia, the Adamic Midwayers are designated alphabetically in order to distinguish them from the numerical designation of the primary Midwayers. Both orders are non-material beings as regards nutrition and energy intake, but they partake of many human traits and are able to enjoy and follow your humor as well as your worship. When attached to mortals, they enter into the spirit of human work, rest, and play. But Midwayers do not sleep neither do they possess powers of procreation. In a certain sense, the secondary group are differentiated along the lines of maleness and femaleness, often being spoken of as he or she. They often work together in such pairs. Midwayers are not men, neither are they angels. But secondary midwayers are in nature nearer man than angel. They are, in a way, of your races, and are therefore very understanding and sympathetic in their contact with human beings. 
they are invaluable to the seraphim in their work for and with the various races of mankind, and both orders are indispensable to the seraphim who serve as personal guardians to mortals. The United Midwayers of Urantia are organized for service with the planetary seraphim in accordance with innate endowments and acquired skills in the following groups. 1. Midway Messengers This group bear names. They are a small corps and are of great assistance on an evolutionary world in the service of quick and reliable personal communication. 2. Planetary Sentinels Midwayers are the guardians, the sentinels, of the worlds of space. They perform the important duties of observers for all the numerous phenomena and types of communication which are of import to the supernatural beings of the realm. They patrol the invisible spirit realm of the planet. 3. Contact Personalities In the contacts made with the mortal beings of the material worlds, such as with the subject through whom these communications were transmitted, the midway creatures are always employed. They are an essential factor in such liaisons of the spiritual and the material levels. 4. Progress Helpers These are the more spiritual of the midway creatures, and they are distributed as assistants to the various orders of seraphim who function in special groups on the planet. Midwayers vary greatly in their abilities to make contact with the seraphim above and with their human cousins below. It is exceedingly difficult, for instance, for the primary midwayers to make direct contact with material agencies. They are considerably nearer the angelic type of being, and are therefore usually assigned to working with and ministering to the spiritual forces resident on the planet. They act as companions and guides for celestial visitors and student sojourners, whereas the secondary creatures are almost exclusively attached to the ministry of the material beings of the realm. The 1,111 loyal secondary midwayers are engaged in important missions on earth. As compared with their primary associates, they are decidedly material. They exist just outside the range of mortal vision and possess sufficient latitude of adaptation to make at will physical contact with what humans call material things. These unique creatures have certain definite powers over the things of time and space, not accepting the beasts of the realm. Many of the more literal phenomena ascribed to angels have been performed by the secondary midway creatures. When the early teachers of the gospel of Jesus were thrown into prison by the ignorant religious leaders of that day, an actual angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth. But in the case of Peter's deliverance after the killing of James by Herod's order, it was a secondary midwayer who performed the work ascribed to an angel. Their chief work today is that of unperceived personal liaison associates of those men and women who constitute the Planetary Reserve Corps of Destiny. It was the work of this secondary group, ably seconded by certain of the primary corps, that brought about the coordination of personalities and circumstances on Urantia, which finally induced the planetary celestial supervisors to initiate those petitions that resulted in the granting of the mandates, making possible the series of revelations of which this presentation is a part. But it should be made clear that the midway creatures are not involved in the sordid performances taking place under the general designation of spiritualism. 
the Midwayers at present on Urantia, all of whom are of honorable standing, are not connected with the phenomena of so-called mediumship, and they do not ordinarily permit humans to witness their sometimes necessary physical activities or other contacts with the material world as they are perceived by human senses. 9. The Permanent Citizens of Urantia Midwayers may be regarded as the first group of the permanent inhabitants to be found on the various orders of worlds throughout the universes, in contrast with evolutionary ascenders like the mortal creatures and the angelic hosts. Such permanent citizens are encountered at various points in the Paradise Ascent. Unlike the various orders of celestial beings who are assigned to minister on a planet, the Midwayers live on an inhabited world. The seraphim come and go, but the midway creatures remain and will remain, albeit they are nonetheless ministers for being natives of the planet, and they provide the one continuing regime which harmonizes and connects the changing administrations of the seraphic hosts. As actual citizens of Urantia, the midwayers have a kinship interest in the destiny of this sphere. They are a determined association, persistently working for the progress of their native planet. Their determination is suggested by the motto of their order, What the United Midwayers Undertake, the United Midwayers Do. Although their ability to traverse the energy circuits makes planetary departure feasible to any Midwayer, they have individually pledged themselves not to leave the planet prior to their sometime release by the universe authorities. Midwayers are anchored on a planet until the ages of settled light and life. With the exception of one, two, three, the first, no loyal midway creatures have ever departed from Urantia. One, two, three, the first, the eldest of the primary order, was released from immediate planetary duties shortly after Pentecost. This noble midwayer stood steadfast with Van and Amadon during the tragic days of the planetary rebellion, and his fearless leadership was instrumental in reducing the casualties in his order. He serves at present on Jerusalem as a member of the twenty-four councillors, having already functioned as governor-general of Urantia once since Pentecost. Midwayers are planet-bound, but much as mortals talk with travelers from afar and thus learn about remote places on the planet, so do midwayers converse with celestial travelers to learn about the far places of the universe. So do they become conversant with this system and universe, even with Orvantan and its sister creations, and so do they prepare themselves for citizenship on the higher levels of creature existence. While the Midwayers were brought into existence fully developed, experiencing no period of growth or development from immaturity, they never cease to grow in wisdom and experience. Like mortals, they are evolutionary creatures, and they have a culture which is a bona fide evolutionary attainment. There are many great minds and mighty spirits among the Urantia Midway Corps. In the larger aspect, the civilization of Urantia is the joint product of the Urantia mortals and the Urantia midwayers, and this is true despite the present differential between the two levels of culture, a differential which will not be compensated prior to the ages of light and life. The midway culture, being the product of an immortal planetary citizenry, is relatively immune to those temporal vicissitudes which beset human civilization. The generations of men forget. The core of midwayers remembers. 
and that memory is the treasure house of the traditions of your inhabited world. Thus does the culture of a planet remain ever-present on that planet, and in proper circumstances such treasured memories of past events are made available, even as the story of the life and teachings of Jesus has been given by the midwayers of Urantia to their cousins in the flesh. Midwayers are the skillful ministers who compensate that gap between the material and spiritual affairs of Urantia which appeared upon the death of Adam and Eve. They are likewise your elder brethren, comrades in the long struggle to attain a settled status of light and life on Urantia. The united midwayers are a rebellion-tested corps, and they will faithfully enact their part in planetary evolution until this world attains the goal of the ages until that distant day when in fact peace does reign on earth, and in truth is their goodwill in the hearts of men. Because of the valuable work performed by these midwayers, we have concluded that they are a truly essential part of the spirit economy of the realms, and where rebellion has not marred a planet's affairs, they are of still greater assistance to the seraphim. The entire organization of high spirits, angelic hosts, and midway fellows is enthusiastically devoted to the furtherance of the Paradise Plan for the progressive ascension and perfection attainment of evolutionary mortals, one of the supernal businesses of the universe, the superb survival plan of bringing God down to man, and then by a sublime sort of partnership, carrying man up to God and on to eternity of service and divinity of attainment, alike for mortal and midwayer. Presented by an Archangel of Nebadon.